In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. God, our Father, you will all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Send workers into your great harvest, that the gospel may be preached to every creature, and your church gathered together by the word of life, and strengthened by the power of the sacraments, may advance in the way of salvation and love through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. In the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. Well, the first thing, I like this room better than the other room, in that it feels better, but the sound is awful, as everybody knows. So, if you cannot understand me, you want me to repeat something, interrupt at any time, um, I do recognize that the sound is very poor in here, and I also have a tendency to speak very fast. Particularly when I get excited, I start speaking faster and faster, and it becomes more and more difficult to understand. So, anyway, interrupt me, throw something at me, as long as it's not the peppermint patty coffee. Um, anyway, so, on to the Council of Trent. Probably the most important council in the history of the Catholic Church. The council that we've gone through... I don't even remember how many we've done. We've gone through around seven councils out of the 19 or so before Trent. And Trent actually produced more documents, more writing, official church teachings came out of the Council of Trent than every council combined before it. And the reason why is that it is in many ways going to be response to the most nuanced and difficult crisis that the church has ever faced, and that is the Protestant, I guess you probably know the Protestant Reformation, we can call it the Protestant Rebellion, which I think is a better, um, better term, um, but anyway, so Council of Trent, it, if you, first thing you notice is the long dates on there that a lot of the gathered councils, one of the reasons why they didn't write a lot, is they actually only met for, I'm trying to think which ones, um, I think it was Ephesus that only met for like three days. Um, that they got together, they made their point, three days later they were done. And they produced one document that was around a page long. And the Council of Trent, first of all you see that it goes over an 18 year span. And one of the things about that is it doesn't actually meet for 18 straight years. Is that that's actually in many ways sort of like three councils combined as one. And that there's going to be three main sessions. And each one is going to be over around a year. Um, so you're going to have one session. Then they're going to have to break up for the plague. Um, and then they're going to meet again. And then they're going to have to break up again because there's Lutheran armies marching on the city, and then they'll have to get back together and finally finish the job. Um, now, to give a little bit of background, but hopefully not to give too much off topic, um, it's important to understand the nature of what was going on with the Protestant Reformation. And this is something we did do a series on the Protestant Reformation two years ago. So if you're wanting more detail, that we still have, I believe, on our website, the podcast of two years ago, where one we had one whole night that simply just went through the, the history and teachings of Martin Luther and John Calvin, and another one of the Reformation going on in England. Now, however, Martin Luther, it is important to 
give a little bit of background because obviously this is the heresy that the Council of Trent is called in response to, just as the Council of Nicaea is called in response to Arius and his heresy. Trent, it all starts with Martin Luther. Now, the important date to remember with Martin Luther, October 31st, 1517, Halloween, Reformation Day. And I will always remember Reformation Day being October 31st for two reasons. One, because it's my brother's birthday. He was the first member of my family to become a Catholic. So there was a lot of great irony in that. And then the second is I remember when at one point in time I had my alarm clock set to a radio uh, alarm in the morning and the only station that I could get was Bob Jones Radio, which most of the time was perfectly lovely. They had nice music, classical music. It's a good way to wake up. But I remember one year on October 31st, I woke up to someone yelling, Happy Reformation Day! Um, so, October 31st, 1517. Now, that is the date that Martin Luther famously posted his 95 Thesis to the church doors in Wittenberg, um, where he was a professor of theology. He was an Augustinian priest. He was a professor of theology. And... Before I get into a little bit of the convening years, but you'll, first thing you'll notice is that's a lot of time from the start of the Reformation to the calling of the Council of Trent. And there's going to be a lot of reasons for that. Um, but to set up the context of where we're going to get there, um, it's important to remember, just go through a little bit, I guess, the history of Martin Luther. And the first is that we all know, okay, so he posted his 95 thesis in response to the churches, we always hear about the selling of indulgences, um, that you had the preachers going around, you had the, some bad ones, the famous um, Johann Tetzel, who, sorry, sister, was a Dominican, but um, there's also a lot of great Dominicans in what we're going to talk about tonight, so that's, and actually we end with a Dominican saint, so, um, but Johann Tetzel had his famous jingle every time the Copper coin, or the coin, copper coin and coffer rings a soul from purgatory springs. Um, so that, that the point was that as indulgences go, and it's always good to go back and re-explain indulgences, particularly being All Souls Week, which is great opportunity for indulgences, that the church simply teaches that having the keys of the kingdom, being, have the power to loose and bind, the, to be able to dispense grace that the papacy can out of the treasury of the church can give out indulgences, which are simply the forgiveness from the temporal punishment due to sin. And I guess a good way of always explaining that is that whenever we sin, that, if, that we are choosing in the hierarchy of goods, that in, in the world there is a hierarchy of goods, that some things are better than others, that God is the best, then people are good, dogs are good, people better than dogs, that there is a hierarchy of goods, and that whenever sin, we sin, what we are doing is we are disordering the hierarchy of goods. We are choosing a lesser good in place of a primary good, and doing so in a disordered manner. So think of like the seven deadly sins. We are choosing um, the sin of gluttony. Food is wonderful. We are choosing um, to take a wonderful thing and disorder it and turn it into an evil thing. Um, think of like this, the sin of um, 
drunkenness. You're taking something great like beer and you're turning it into something um, disordered. So anyway, every time we sin, it disorders our, our loves. And so even though we might be forgiven of our sins, we go to confession, there are, it doesn't mean that our loves are automatically properly ordered. We still might be attracted to those sins, that there's still temporal um, um, effects in our lives. It's kind of like we think of ourselves as a block of wood that a nail was hammered in, and when we are forgiven, the nail is removed, but that hole is still there. There's still damage in your life. Like, say, for instance, a man struggles with pornography, um, and he goes to confession. He will be forgiven in, in his white as snow, but it's still going to be a struggle for him that he's going to have to try extra hard to overcome. So, what an indulgence does is it helps with those, that temporal punishment due to sin. It helps properly order um, our loves. The same way that's the reason why we do penance. It's doing the same thing. It's trying to take away that temporal punishment to properly order our loves. Ultimately, that's what gets fulfilled with purgatory. It's getting the loves in the right order so that we're able to enter into heaven. Now, in order to receive an indulgence that there are several things that are required. First of all, you have to be in a state of grace, having gone to confession. But you also need to have pray for the intentions of the Holy Father. And then the other main thing is you have to perform a specific act. So one of the acts that was um, often considered a, a good and holy act, and is a good and holy thing, is the donating to the building of a church. So this is where this practice came about, though, is that when these preachers would go about to preach this indulgence, this actual opportunity that people had to receive an indulgence by donating to the building of a church, that oftentimes they would leave off the most essential parts, such as you actually have to be in a state of grace and have gone to confession. It doesn't do any good to take away the temporal punishment due to sin if the eternal punishment is still there. Um, so you had these serious indulgence abuses. Uh, that, there's no denying that fact. So Martin Luther posted his famous 95 thesis, um, questions for debate about the sale of indulgences. But the big thing is, is he went farther than that. If he was just questioning church abuse like many other um, different reformers throughout the church had done, that would have been one thing. But what he did immediately from the very beginning is he's going to deny that the church has any power to give indulgences to begin with. And the reason why he denies us in the end of the 95 Thesis is because he had developed a particular doctrine called the first of what his sola is, the sola fide, that man is saved by faith alone. And this comes from that Martin Luther, who had a deeply overly scrupulous soul, meaning he, he thought that things were sins that were not sins, even though his confessor would tell them that that was not a sin, he still just felt guilty all the time. And he never fully uh, felt the grace of the forgiveness offered in the absolution in the sacrament of confession. So he, he never felt like he was actually able to to do anything that was good. He just had this overwhelming sense of guilt. And if you, there's a lot of psychological things that one can get into, his background with his childhood and his abusive parents and etc. But that was the state he was in. Is he, just, he could not 
ever feel forgiven in the sacraments. He felt wicked, and so this was a huge struggle with him. And then finally what happened in what was called, where he called the the revelation that God gave him in the privy, um, truth of history, um, that he decided just one day, he's like, it doesn't matter. That's why that I feel guilty. He's like, because I am guilty. That, and he's like, it, but it doesn't matter because how we live, how we act, ultimately is not necessary for our salvation. So the, the heresy that he came up with is that man is saved purely by an intellectual faith and belief in Jesus Christ. And that you can somehow separate that faith from Christian living. That basically, essentially, instead of the old Catholic position that you're saved by grace through faith, hope, and love working together, he sort of artificially separates faith, hope, and love and turns faith into this sort of forensic justification, meaning as you just have this sort of intellectual belief and in that Christ or God deems that you are saved. And rather than actually grace transforming your life and Faith actually requiring that you live it out too, all at the same time. Does that make sense for the most part? That's an oversimplification; doesn't do justice to Martin Luther, but it gets at the the essence of what's going on. That man saved by faith alone. But that's what he starts with. And at first, that the church does not entirely know what to do with this teaching um, because he's preaching this that he is a monk. He's an Augustinian that they've dealt with heresies like this before. Um, so what they, they're obviously not going to hold an ecumenical council to deal with the matter yet. So what instead what they do is they decide, you know what, we'll just go send some learned theologians to go and have a little conversation with him and maybe try to convince him where he has gone wrong. And um, so... At first, what they ended up doing was they sent one guy named Cardinal Cajutan who went and talked with him and who's going to come up later on. And then that conversation didn't go much of anywhere. And then they sent another theologian, Johann Eck, to go and talk with him. And in this conversation, in this argument, um, because right now, Luther was only really preaching this heresy of sola fide. That at this time, Eck in his conversation with Luther, that they start getting into an argument, sort of authority, sort of like, well, who are you to say this? And Luther's response basically is, you know what? We need an ecumenical council. And this is Luther. He wanted to have an ecumenical council because he thought that an ecumenical council would come down on his side. Um, So at this time, he's not denying the authority of the church. He, He has very choice words to say about the pope. Um, And he was a bit of what's called a conciliarist, which is a heresy that had popped up around 100 years before this, which taught that an ecumenical council could somehow be superior to a pope, which is just kind of nonsense saying that the definition of an ecumenical council is all the bishops under the pope, um, and separating the two artificially doesn't work. But that was particularly popular in Germany. so Luther is a little bit of on, on that side, but he still believed in the authority of the church within ecumenical councils, and that's what he appeals to. Um, however, Johann Eck points out in the middle of the conversation that ecumenical councils have already discussed 
that man is not saved by faith alone and already addressed his heresy um, in no uncertain terms. And in fact, the Council of Constance, one that we skipped over, which had condemned the heretic John Huss, who had already preached that same heresy, had already addressed that matter. And so that's when Luther famously asked for a little intermission, and he came back with his new revelation that ecumenical councils are not a, a source of divine revelation, but rather he ends up with his new sola, sola scriptura, that scripture alone um, is true from error. So he basically decides, well, if an ecumenical council has said I'm wrong, then obviously ecumenical councils can be wrong, rather than looking introspectively at himself and thinking, well, if an ecumenical council says I'm wrong, maybe I am the one that needs to adjust. But anyway, um, so it goes from there, and then there's a long, um, a long history of continuing on with Luther. It doesn't just end there. The Pope gives him a certain amount of time to recant. That's when the Pope... He wrote him a letter, actually it was a papal bull, which I guess is a letter, um, called Exurge Domine, and that's giving him basically 60 days to recant his heresy, and Luther's response instead was to write a very violent pamphlet calling for all of the princes of Germany to rise up, and they had a good quote in there somewhere too, um, and wash their hands in the blood of the sacrilegious impostors of Rome. Um, that's his direct quote. And in famously throws the Pope's um, papal bull, after giving him 60 days for a cant, into a bonfire on, on the rubbish heap outside of the town where they were in the middle of burning St. Thomas and other works of Thomistic, um, or of scholastic, that is the word I'm looking for, scholastic theology that disagreed with him. Um, so, Luther gets excommunicated. And then, as the, this is where you're going to, after he's excommunicated, the big thing that really um, complicates the response to Luther, and that is politics. Politics, politics, politics. And there's a couple of key things to keep in to keep in mind, is that, first of all, you have different political players that really confuse everything. And the first is trying to understand what's going on in Germany. That there was no unified Germany at the time. The Germany was known as the Holy Roman Empire, which makes me think of the old Saturday Night Live thing, that it was neither truly holy nor Roman nor an empire, but that's okay. Um, and there was a young man who had just come to the throne the king of Spain, Charles, who becomes known as Charles V. And if you want a man that rules over one large domain, that is him. So he's ruling over Spain. And we have to remember at this time, Spain basically owns the entirety of South America. Um, he, they own the Netherlands. He rules the, over the entire Holy Roman Empire, which is basically from Denmark down to... The northern, through the northern half of Italy. He was also oversaw Naples and southern Italy and Sicily. Um, that's a whole lot of land. And the famous quote of him with all of that, because he ruled people that spoke Spanish and French and Italians and Germans, but his 
famous quote is that he would speak Spanish to God, he said, Italian to women, French to men, and German to his horse, um, and ruling all those. But that's um, Charles V, and he's Catholic. He's the Catholic emperor during this time. He's an interesting figure. He actually ends up, at the very end of his life, resigning as emperor and goes and lives out the rest of his days as a monk in a monastery. Um, so most powerful man in the world gives it up to become a monk. So he's not a bad guy. But he's going to be interfering, sort of Charlemagne style, or, or Emperor Constantine style, you name it, within the workings of what's going on in the church. And what's going to even complicate it more is you're going to have other Catholic rulers that are going to be more than happy to interfere, and we'll get into some of those in a little bit. But, so Charles V, this is all going on in his land. Germany is under his um, oversight, so he's the one that tries to deal with the problem of Martin Luther, and so he calls what's called the Diet of Worms, Diet of Worms, and this is when they decide that they're going to basically try Martin Luther. Now, the thing about this that's interesting is that this is actually, in many ways, an example of the Catholic rulers not listening to the Pope and the Church by this time, that Innocent III is no longer Pope, um, where you have the Pope saying jump and kings are saying how high. But rather by this time, the Pope is trying to say jump and everybody just utterly ignores him, even the Catholic rulers. That there's a real problem of this time of the state exercising its authority over the church left and right. It's not just in the Protestant countries that will get a little bit like England where Henry VIII is going to declare himself the supreme head of the church in England, that in many ways some of the Catholic rulers are going to do pretty much the exact same thing. They're just never going to do it in name, just in practice. Um, so, if you remember, Luther's already been excommunicated. He is, his sentence has already been passed down. But the Catholic rulers of the Holy Roman Empire decided that, you know what, they know a little bit better than the Pope. They're going to ignore that, and they're going to give him a fair trial. And so that's why, despite the Pope's wishes, they ended up basically retrying him at the Council of Worms, and but they had promised him safe conduct. So even though they decide that he's guilty and he's actually condemned as an outlaw um, on sentence of death, they have to let him go. And the real problem is, that state problem, is that his local ruler, Frederick of Saxony, loves Luther's teachings and thinks that Luther's the best thing since sliced bread. And there's sort of two main reasons for this. Um, and it's the, um, the, it's kind of, make, actually it makes me think a little bit of, it's kind of like murder mysteries on, in, in, on TV, that the crime, it always comes back to sort of two things. Um, it's always either about women or money, and like something tied in there, um, relationships and money. And so anyway, Erasmus famously, at this time, said that the Reformation was really about the same thing, too. Um, that is really simply about women and money. Um, and so that's sort of true here when you have Frederick of Saxony, that 
he loves Luther, but he's not a great theologian, but it's all about money. And actually, and this is a lot of the problems in the church today, that, particularly in Germany, that, um, that if Luther is right, that man is saved by faith alone, then all human actions of trying to live out the faith as well as we can really are useless. Um, and so one such useless thing is monasticism. Um, so Luther condemned the idea that one needed to become a monk. I mean, you had a whole bunch of heresies that came out of all of this. When, with man saved by faith alone, obviously the sacraments don't do anything. They don't give grace. Um, then living out a monastic life doesn't necessary. If there's no, if the sacraments um, do not give real, true grace, then the sacrament of holy orders is not. Um, there anyway you can sort of implication after implication that goes from these but the some of the princes in Germany they were pretty excited about this because if monasticism is useless then they have a great excuse to close all the monasteries and take all of their money Um, and so also it also gave them a great excuse by which they could sort of band together in a rebellion against Charles V and try to get as much as they could for themselves um, and this is one of the, the truths of the history of the Reformation and Protestantism is that every single reformer, for some reason or another, is going to, actually not one reason or another, but it's because they deny the sacrament of holy orders that ultimately, if you believe that all men are equally priests, then a prince is just as much a priest as the pope. And therefore, he has every bit as much right to run the church and rule the church as a pope. Therefore, an end result with all of these um, reformers is the state controlling the church and the state being superior to the church. And actually, in fact, all the reformers are going to argue that the state should be listened to more than the church because they, in the, the Bible, they clearly see the state being um, instituted and um, Paul talking about um, the state and Jesus saying, Give, render unto Caesar. But they didn't see the church in the same way. Does that make sense, kind of? So, anyway, um, you end up with that sort of that chaos and that mess. Now, trying to get to the Council of Trent. The Pope, trying to deal with all this. So you've got this heresy spreading like wildfire in northern Germany. You have all sorts of German princes who are latching onto this heresy for political and economic reasons reasons. You've got an emperor trying to deal with rebellion, trying to deal with the heresy, but also not necessarily listening to the Pope. Then one problem you have too, as the Pope at the time of Luther, Leo X, not a good guy. Right after Luther, you get a new Pope, Clement, I think it's the, make sure I get the number right. I believe it's Clement VII. Yeah, Clement VII, really not a great guy. He's simply just more interested in political matters than anything else. He was a Medici. We all know the Medici families, or family from, not families, the Medici family from um, Florence, and he was more controlled about winning influence and supporting the Medicis than he was with actually trying to reform anything in the church. Um, so you've got that political problem going on. 
And then another huge problem is in between all of these realms ruled by um, Charles and his family, the Habsburgs, there's one country that's surrounded by all of them. And so in between Spain and Germany is France. Um, good old France. And this is easy to remember that the king of France was named France. Francis the first. That he's going to be a thorn in the side of all of this at the same time too. So why does the council take so long to actually meet? Well, first of all, so you've got a pope who's not overly concerned with actually reforming the church for a while. Then you have the two principal players in Catholic Europe that despise each other and are more concerned with trying to kill each other than with actually doing anything to reform the church. Charles, he's worried about stopping the spread of Protestantism because it's disrupting his empire, but you have a Catholic king in France that he is perfectly happy to support the Protestants against Charles. He's perfectly happy to support the Turks who are invading from the east against Charles because he was not a good guy and all he cared about was the good of France. Um, and then the Pope's dealing with all this political mess. So, that's going on for a while. And then finally, thankfully Clement dies, and you get a new Pope. And Paul III. And there's going to be a bunch of Popes throughout all of this. And Paul III was not as bad as Clement, but he was also not a saint. He was not a great Pope, and actually one of the biggest problems is he, he's going to spend a lot of time trying to help his family too, in particular his two sons and his grandsons. So it's always funny talking about the Pope and his sons, but back when he was an, a young priest, he had had, a, then this is an example of the dissolute lifestyle of a lot of priests back then, he had had a mistress and he actually had two sons and multiple grandsons who, two of his grandsons that he made cardinals when they were 15 years old. Um, so, but anyway, he is, actually does want to at least have a council to address this problem. But there's all sorts of questions that are coming up. First of all is, where's the council going to be? The Germans want to have it in Germany because that's where the problem's going on. The French say, if you have it in Germany, we're not sending anybody. Um, you have, I mean, it's an absolute mess. Then the Germans are arguing, well, what kind of council is it going to be? Are we... How is the voting going to take place? And they're actually, are we going to invite the Lutherans to come too? Um, are we going to, and it was just a mess. And finally, 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 he calls the council. Um, I mean, there is, I mean, more drama than you can get into. And part, part of it was they weren't still not entirely sure just how complicated a matter this Lutheran rebellion was. Remember, this is a time before the internet. There's tracks going around and things like that. But just how off the reservation Martin Luther was, they weren't entirely sure. So finally, at one point, they decided, you know, let's have another little conference with what are now the second generation Lutherans and see if we can talk it out. And it was finally at the second conference, they just said, you know, this isn't something we can just sit down at a little beer summit and talk out. Um, this is really does require an ecumenical council. So it's finally convoked. So in January 1543, if you notice, um, the council starts. The Pope shows up, 
and there's a bishop. And nobody else there. And then a couple more bishops arrive, and it turns out that war between Francis and Charles had only started a few weeks before, and the Pope, through all the negotiations beforehand, refused to take either one side, so they both hated him. And as a result, they both refused to let any of their bishops in their countries go to the council. So in all, there ended up being something like 20 bishops that actually showed up. So they decided, you know what? We'll try this again. And so they had to stop and try it again later. Um, Trent is in northern sort of, basically is south of the Alps. Northern Italy, southern Germany, that region. It was part of the Holy Roman Empire, but it's more, I guess, that mix between Italian and German culture you get in that. Like the closest big city is Innsbruck, um, if, if you know your geography better than me. CJ, yeah. Yeah, there's all sorts of abuses, and those are just, those were a small thing compared to other stuff that was going on in the church. And part of the reason... When I said Charles disliked Paul, it wasn't just Charles's fault that Paul wouldn't support him, that Paul had actually made one of his sons a duke of this new made-up duchy that was part of Charles's domains, and his son, was a, Pierre Luigi, was a complete thorn in the side of Charles, and Paul, systematically, third, systematically supported his um, pain-in-the-neck son um, at the expense of Charles, and Charles wasn't happy about this. Now, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They were so the ninety-five thesis. It has some, like basically some questions of well, of just abuses that are going on, things like that. But these are the the two most fundamental questions that every other sort of Lutheran teaching is in many ways just a logical conclusion of those. Um, so finally, Paul III is able to get the council called um, for real. They meet back in Trent, and some bishops are going to come from Italy, I mean from France. Actually, I had a number of them. Um, I think it's only like 15 actually end up coming from France. And in the end result, they only end up actually with two from Germany. It's almost entirely just Spanish and Italians that are going to be there. But the first sort of series going on at Trent is, it's a small number, but actually in many ways, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Because it turns out when you have a small number, it's easier to actually get stuff done than when you have an enormous number. And this is kind of the difference between next week when you get to the Vatican councils, that the Vatican councils had such a hard time because when you have 700 bishops, they all want to speak their piece and give their opinion, and it's hard to actually get anything done. But when you have 65 bishops, they're actually pretty efficient. So... Hmm? Well, there actually technically is not a quorum. I mean, there is no required quorum. If the council's called, if only two bishops showed up and the pope was still there, that's their problem. Because <laughs> it's ultimately through the authority of, like, the, I mean, the church, but so um, there's not a required quorum. 
Now, they sent three, even though Paul III is, like I said, he's interested in a lot of political stuff more than he should be. He's not a bad guy in that he, you can usually tell the quality of someone by who they associate with. And so who does he send to run the first session? He sends three really good guys. And, that, and actually two of the three are going to become Pope, and one of them almost becomes Pope. Um, that you have three guys he sends to run, run it. You've got one guy who's named John Maria Dalmonte, who's going to become a Pope. Um, he was an old member of like the papal curia, but he was not a corrupt guy, but he was very well efficient, very efficient. You have another guy who was very well educated named Servini, and he actually got involved because he was the Pope's grandchildren's tutor, um, but he was a very smart guy. And the third one was a guy named Cardinal Reginald Pohl, who was one of the coolest guys of the age. He was... The, one of the closest male relatives of Henry VIII. And actually, um, it could have been argued that after Henry VIII, he was, would have been next in line to actually be king of England. Um, but he's Catholic and a cardinal, so that's not going to happen. And he's going to actually spend almost the entirety of his life in exile. And Henry VIII is going to try to have him assassinated multiple times, that there's always assassins on his, at his back. Um, and he's watch, watching over his shoulder. Um, but he is the one that more or less runs the first session. And he starts off by giving this very, very fiery address about um, the direction of, that the church has been going and the reform that needs to be done. And it, the, Reginald Pohl. And actually, he's going to be Archbishop of Canterbury under the famous Bloody Mary, the, the Catholic Queen. Um, and, and it's very important that the tone he takes immediately is not that the church has been guiltless, but rather the church has been run by scoundrels and it needs to be fixed now. And so the two sort of main things that they have to address are doctrine, meaning the teachings that Martin Luther is attacking, but also the very serious abuses that have been going on in the church. And there's actually a little bit of debate over which they should address first. So they talk about the abuses first or the doctrines first. And the end result is they, to, as a compromise, is they decide, you know, we'll tackle them at the same time. So they just sort of go back and forth as they're going through, like, abuses here, doctrines here. Um, they don't, there's not systematically like, we'll go through the doctrines, we'll go through the abuses. It's, it's, um, it's not as linear as a physics professor would probably like, but that's okay. Um, but, because I am linear, we will talk about the abuses than the doctrines, even though that's not how they actually um, addressed it. Now, so first thing is it does, or not it does, but when we go through the abuses, is they address at these different sessions, and we'll get into a little bit right at the end why the sessions break up, but that'll only take a second. Um, but the abuses, they are pretty darn systematic when they go through the abuses that need to be addressed. Oh, actually, sorry, before we get into the abuses, the other important thing is 
to understand is the makeup of how they actually ran stuff. Is they were pretty efficient. Like I said, there was not a lot of bishops there. But they decided, you know what? We're going to divide the council into they had the bishops who are the voting um, people there. They get to have the votes. But then they also had a body of experts, mostly Dominicans, that they had there. And they were the ones that were charged with actually arguing out and hashing out the, the technical theological matters. And then they would basically present their positions to the bishops who didn't have to come up with, they didn't have to do the, the theology work. What they had to do was basically listen kind of like a jury and then vote on the positions. And so it was, and actually also the heads of five different religious orders were also given votes with the bishops too. Um, so anyway, the, and there are some great theologians there. The majority of the experts were Dominicans. Um, there's a bunch of Dominicans. Um, but another, the, the other ones were basically Jesuits from Spain. In particular, this, there's a famous, famous school at Salamanca. Um, and the most famous is probably um, De Soto. It's, he gave a great address on, at the council. Actually, on the feast was now the John Henry Newman. But it, that's when he, not to be confused with the explorer De Soto discovered what he discovered in Mississippi. Um, anyway, so, but DeSoto, and, and as we mentioned before, actually Cardinal Cajetan was another one of the, the experts. He was both a bishop and the th very learned theologian. So anyway, um, the abuses. They decided to go through and basically just take an ax to the abuses going on in the church. So first thing they did was they start with the bishops. And what are the problems going on with the bishops? And they actually um, identified the issues very well. That, that one of the main problems was what was called multiple benefices. That you had... I don't know how to spell that properly. But you had basically bishops that are bishops of multiple dioceses at the same time. You're not going to be a good bishop if you're trying to run multiple dioceses at the same time. And tied in with this was a practice of absentee bishops, where you had bishops, bishops, their bishops of multiple dioceses, and they never even stepped foot in one of their bishops. Milan had not had a bishop actually present for 100 years. Um, that is not good. <laughs> if you're, and so they absolutely eliminated that. They eliminated the, the, the means by which um, people get their benefices. Um, in order to make it so it has to come directly from the Pope in order to try to stop that abuse. They um, um, decided, you know what? That one of the problems, too, was there was a slight unallowed delay from when one gets appointed bishop to when they're consecrated. And you wouldn't think this is necessarily a problem, but you would have people like eight-year-olds getting appointed bishop but they can't get consecrated yet, so you would have maybe like a 15, 20-year delay before they're actually consecrated. So you have 15, 20 years of diocese with no active leadership. So they did away with that and said, all right, if you're not consecrated within six months, you'll lose it. If you, and you have, um, they have put in a minimum age requirement. Um, then they... Uh, they went through and they addressed the money issue that the, 
that money is the love of money is the root of all evil as it goes that that they're the problem of bishops being greedy so they went through and they completely changed the system by which bishops can raise money for their diocese etc um, basically making it that they can no longer just tax churches there was um, a bunch of things that they sort of cut out to try to um, cut away the corruption of different bishops um, one of the things that they did with the indulgences was they eliminated all indulgence preachers that own, the only person that could um, preach an indulgence was the bishop himself. And that part of that was to make sure that the, you're not getting that watering down of the doctrine, that confusion over what it does. Um, then another big problem um, was if you want to, um, oh yeah, the, sorry, I'm having a little way of wording it, that, the, um, that priests were not very well educated was one thing, that you had, if you, it's an amazing thing to think, but there was no such thing as a seminary system ever created in the church up to this time. That you had religious orders like the Dominicans who developed their own houses of study whereby they trained their priests and the Franciscans did the same, but the average, um, the average parish priest did not have to go to seminary, that they had more of kind of like an apprenticeship system whereby one priest would have the, the apprentice and he would teach him himself the scripture, etc. Um, and for the most part, it actually worked pretty well, but ultimately the, that system sort of fell apart. And, um, and part of that too was... It's sort of an interesting thing is back then that almost every parish had only one priest, just like there is now. But the difference is, it's because they had so many parishes um, that if you were to go to a city like London, there was literally one parish every city block. Um, but anyway, and so they, but part of, so that they're not educated. Um, then another problem is they didn't have very good standards by who, by which they were deciding who to let become priests to begin with. So, and part of this is after the Black Death, if you remember, had, back in the day, had killed a third of all the priests in Europe. They had really lowered the standards, and you're getting a lot of unworthy men. So they, basically, they put in strict standards by which to judge whether a person could be allowed to enter the priesthood. And then they set up a, a system by which they were going to educate those priests. They required each, basically, Catholic diocese had to have a Catholic high school um, for them to go to. And then they had to have a seminary, and they sort of they created the seminary system, which the word a seminarian literally means like the, the seabed of the priesthood, that they were going to actually have a system which they were going to, based upon the Dominican system of study, that they were going to actually educate the priests. Um, and then they went through and they systematically, now that they had rebuked the bishops and done as much as they could to... Um, reduce the abuses there. They also recognize at the same time the bishops are going to be the one who's going to reform the diocese. So they also reaffirmed the powers of the bishop within his diocese to systematically reform all of the parishes within the diocese. Um, they went through and they improved 
the, they got rid of the, the, the nepotism that had crept up within the church, which is ironic, seeing that Paul III was a very big nepotist. Um, but one of the things that they did was they outlawed all nepotism within the church and actually that you could get excommunicated for doing so, for practicing it. Um, they... Oh, actually, then they didn't even leave it there. They also went and did great reforms through the, for the laity. And one of the things that they famously did was they outlawed all duels for Catholics. That was a real problem at the time. The, no, the Catholic nobles of Europe were killing each other left and right. And so they very harshly have multiple paragraphs where they go through and they outlaw all duels. And basically anyone that participates in a duel whatsoever just gets automatically excommunicated because they're trying to murder somebody. Um, and even the person that dies in the duel is not allowed Christian burial because their very last act was to try to murder somebody. Um, so that's an interesting part. Um, one of the things that it doesn't do was... Um, that they never address is the Catholic um, rulers very well, that they are a little bit shied off from that. And it's a problem that the church is going to have to deal with for a couple hundred years still after this, but the, the encroachment of the Catholic rulers and them, that it seems like they go through every other aspect of Catholic life, but they never talk about the Catholic state, which is, if you're going to talk about a failing of Trent, that would probably be it. But then again, they might not have gotten everything done that they did do. Um, anyway, so, um, but then they also get into the teaching. They, one thing that's important too is that they, when they get into the teaching aspect, they don't simply just go through and refute where Martin Luther goes wrong. They went and they very thoroughly explained the entirety of each teaching in response. So they have a huge big section that's actually a third of all the decrees on justification, how man is saved in response to his teaching of man being saved by faith alone. So they don't simply just go through and say, okay, man's not saved by faith alone, but they go into the entirety of every false understanding of justification and explaining the true understanding of justification. So likewise, they go through and actually they even condemned heresies that had been condemned a long time before, like Pelagianism, which had argued that man could be saved by works alone. So they are saying, nope, it's not that extreme either, and they actually get into the entire long Catholic teaching on justification, that man is saved by faith, hope, and love. Um, and it's amazing, you could go through the number of reforms that they did. There's a bunch that I'm not even going to have time to get to. Um, but then they go through that. I have a nice list of all of the different stuff that they addressed. They spent a huge portion talking about the sacraments um, that they had. They talked, so they had one section or the one decree on Holy Scripture. They actually had four decrees and five canons they wrote on original sin. And a big reason of that is because you've got John Calvin and the Calvinists and Luther who are very confused on that. And they, they're thinking that man is utterly and totally depraved, which is part of why they don't think that, which is actually in many ways at the root of that sola fide teaching, because they don't think man can ever do anything good. 
but then you also have, um, like I said, this, there's 33 teachings on justification, but there's a bunch on the sacraments in general. They have them on baptism, bunches on the Eucharist, because if you remember, John Calvin by this time is denying that the bread and wine actually become the body and blood of Christ. Martin Luther, who thought in his sort of nonsensical position that it became the body and blood of Christ, but it stayed bread and wine at the same time. Um, and so they go through and they address every single one of these. And actually, a large, such a large portion is focused on the sacraments because, and not necessarily all of the theological positions, because for the average Catholic, the sacraments are the primary means, the sacramental life by which they experience the faith. And making sure that that is right and that is understood properly is in many ways one of the most important if not the most important thing that the church can do, because it helps clarify for all of the Catholics that most people in Europe did not really understand the debate of man being saved by faith alone versus man being saved by faith and works working together, that they are not going to be um, that concerned about that theological matter. But the bread and wine really becoming the body and blood of Christ directly affects the average person's life um, does that make sense? So that's why they spend so long talking about the sacraments. And that's a big, huge key, is that the, that the reformers, ultimately they denied that the sacraments did anything, that they were a source of grace. That, and while the Catholic Church, they are the primary source of grace. The primary way by which we get holier is through the sacraments. And so it, this is why those original discussions with Luther broke down so thoroughly is because it, when you get to that point that the sacraments do nothing versus the sacraments do everything, that you're just, it's like apples and oranges. Um, but anyway, um, I keep looking at the clock and realize I'm going over, but that's okay. Now, one thing that's important too to notice is that one of the complaints that Protestants often try to make is they say, is completely fictional, but what they'll say is, you know what, before the Council of Trent, people were allowed to believe sort of whatever they wanted, that there was not this harsh uniformity in, enforced by the Catholic Church, that they argue actually that the Council of Trent is when people all had to start believing in transubstantiation. You couldn't have your slightly different views. Same with justification, etc. Um, and that is just a complete historical myth, that there is no... Um, there, that is not true whatsoever. That even going through the canons, they're very, very, they're don't, they don't go through and say, well, some people have believed this over time and some people have believed this. Every single one of them like, nope, this is what the church has believed throughout its entirety. This is what the church has believed throughout its entirety. Um, it, that the uniformity is enforced at, at Trent, but it does not begin at Trent. And I've actually had multiple arguments with people trying to argue that. And it's a complete historical myth. Now, actually, I like how um, Philip Hughes, that he called that a, a, a myth that is too grotesque for patience to bear. <laughs> I thought that was good. Um, All right, so why did the council break up so many times, etc.? I already mentioned a little bit, but the first, I mean, we thought, I think, might think Vatican II 
is bad, where you end up with two popes in one council. Trent, far more so. So you had, um, the first time it gets interrupted is because there was, like I said, the plague. We think of the Black Death, the bubonic plague, just being back in the Middle Ages. That is not true. It would come back every 50, 70 years and then come back again. All the way up into the 1800s, it was coming back. And so, anyway, the plague hit Trent. And the, I mean, and then you also have, so you have all of these bishops who are like, I am out of here, because um, you don't hang around when the plague's there. But then you have the political problems, too, in that Charles V refuses to believe that the plague's actually there. He thinks it's just an excuse made up so that they can leave. You have the king of France at the, the time who refuses to let his bishops leave, um, you can imagine they weren't probably very happy um, because he thinks it's a made-up excuse, too. And anyway, um, so, the plague. Now, they finally... Oh, and then the other thing that happens is the Pope dies. So, you get a new Pope. And he was actually one of the leaders at the council. Um, the Del, De Monte, Del Monte, sorry, and he becomes Pope Julius III. And so he is going to, um, actually, I think he only rules for like, I think he's only Pope for like three weeks before he dies. Um, so Pope, new Pope, only three weeks. They've got a deal now with trying to elect a new Pope. And so when the Pope dies, as we know, the having a papal conclave and things, it interrupts everything going within the church. So you had had plague going on, you have popes dying, needing new popes. The idea of actually getting things up and running so you can get the, 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 the machine of the bureaucratic machine of the church going enough that you can reconvene the council, it just simply takes a while. And so um, you end up with a new pope after Julius III dies, and they finally, they get... Um, the, the council up and running again, and this time Charles V's war with the German princes isn't going so well. He suffers a big defeat and actually has to, almost gets captured himself and has to flee back to Innsbruck, and a giant Lutheran army is heading towards Trent after they had been reconvened for a few months. And having a giant angry Lutheran army coming at your ecumenical council is not a good thing, so they have to flee again. And they actually end up meeting in Bologna for a little bit. Um, and then the Pope dies again. So it slows it back down to reconvene. And then they end up with a new Pope. And you can't even keep track of all these guys. Pope Paul IV. So you had had... Um, I don't think I can remember. So you had Clement VII, then you had Pi or Paul III... Then you ended up with Julius III, but then you get Paul IV, and he was, in many ways, sort of like the, the grim John Calvin of the Catholic Church. He was, Philip Hughes described him as the most, the grimmest reformer who ever sat on St. Peter's chair. He was harsh, 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 and he spent his four-month reign basically executing people left and right heretics, as criminals, everybody he could get his hands on in the papal states, so that everybody hated him, even the good people were afraid of him. 
Um, and then finally, he died too. And you end up with another pope, Pius IV, and he's the one that he's pretty good, and he's a lawyer, he's, and he's a, he's a very smart guy. And part of the problem was that Paul the Fourth was such a harsh, in many ways you can say sort of harsh, simple-minded man, that all of the political drama going on that the Pope had to be able to wheel and deal to get this council going, he was incapable of doing because everybody hated him. All the rulers hated him. All of his people hated him. So he was simply so extreme that a lot of people you can, are, that I'm sure that were wanting reformers in the church. They were like, yeah, we've got this harsh reformer, but he was so dogmatic about it that he couldn't actually get anything done. That Pius IV was a very smart lawyer, but he was very moderate not that he didn't love the gospel, but that he knew how to actually not turn off people, how to be politic about it. So he is the one that got the last session going, and he's the one that is going to promulgate all of the, all of the decrees of the council. Now actually carrying out the decrees, though, that the council said that a bunch of things, like I said, had they done all those reforms, that the, the man who actually carries it out is that finally, after a long span of bad popes and mediocre popes and okay popes, they finally end up with a saint on the chair of throne of St. Peter, and that's St. Pius V, that you had a, a, a Dominican... Um, Michel Gissieri, and he is actually the reason why the Pope wears white to this day, because Dominicans wear white, and he wore white, and he was such a good Pope that every Pope has worn white since then in his honor. Um, and so he's the one that is going to oversee the reforms of the church and actually put them into place. And thus ends the council of Trent. But like I said, that one failing of not addressing the Catholic princes is still a huge problem that they have to face. Now, does anyone have any questions? Anything they want to add to all of that whirlwind of everything? Yeah? Uh, the the issue of the souls, Yes. They went through scripture, they went through divine, like revelation, they're reaffirming that the church actually, Christ do, does actually. Um, reveal truth through the church, um, that it's not just scripture alone. And actually the first, I mean, they spent time on scripture. And actually one of the things that they did was they went and they reaffirmed what the canon of scripture is in an infallible manner at the council. Because if you remember Martin Luther, it was, had taken out parts of scripture that disagreed with him. And he had even famously in his translation of the New Testament changed the words of St. Paul to say that man is saved by faith alone. And so they addressed all of that. Um, basically, everything that Luther was teaching, they addressed. And every abuse just about that was going on in the church, they addressed. And it was one of the most successful councils. And there's a reason why they don't call another one until the 1870s. Because 
it is going to be that effective in reforming the church. Not that you're not going to have still serious abuses, because there's abuse at any time. This is what's the great thing about studying ecumenical councils, is you see that the church is an absolute mess. It is full of terrible people that mess things up left and right. And the great thing about it is that the Holy Spirit keeps it going. Like that, that despite everyone trying within the church trying to steer the bark of Peter into the rocks left and right, that the Holy Spirit keeps blasting the, the bark away from the rocks in the right direction. Um, I mean, if you can't go through the ecumenical councils and see that, wow, the Holy Spirit has to be at work here because otherwise there's nothing else to explain how such a mess can actually still exist. <laughs> Yeah. There always seems to be a uh, issue that uh, Luther opened up the Bible or encouraged the people to read the Bible and encouraged the encouraged the Protestants to do that. Oh yeah, that so the, I'm just repeating it for the microphone. But that um so about the the I guess in many ways the myth that Luther opened up the Bible to the average people. Well, one thing, there's a myth about that, is that people knew the Bible before Luther. The Middle Ages, everybody knew the Bible. Um, and part of this is the only book that was readily available to people was the Bible. That every church had a Bible. They had it chained. The, and this is sort of the process like the phrase, well, they had the Bible chained up. It's not that they had it chained up, you couldn't open it. But a Bible costs equivalent of around $35,000 today. So they kept it stuck to a chain, kind of like the pen at the the bank, even though I don't know who would steal a pen in a bank, but they had the Bible chained up, and part of that is so that anybody at any time can go in and read the Bible. And it was in Latin, but the fact remains that anybody could read that could read could read Latin. There was nobody that could read that could only read in the vernacular. Um, and that's a truth until the 20th century. Um, and so people knew the Bible. And actually, in, you, in the Middle Ages, if you look at even the, the receipts written by merchants and things like that, they're full of Bible quotations left and right that all of their allusions, they're just, they're making Bible jokes and stuff left and right. People knew the scripture. Um, and actually, even translations of the Bible that the first, I mean, these are simply just complete myths that the first English translations of the Bible were hundreds of years before John Wycliffe and these other reformers in England, that there was, at the time of Luther, something like 500 different German versions of the Bible before he translated his. Um, he was not the first one. They, they were readily available. And actually, that one thing I did forget to mention about the Council of Trent talking about the laity is it talks about the obligation of everybody to know the scripture. And it goes through, and it actually encourages the study of scripture, um, etc., um, granted, the church at the same time was always, yeah, not everybody has the right to publicly preach about Scripture. Not that you have to be careful when reading the Scripture because private interpretation is a mess. There's a reason why a friend of mine likes to put it that sola scriptura and sola fide ultimately results in another sola, sola mia. Um, that, 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 so anyway... Any other questions or anything?
Neil. Yeah, so, yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah, Ain't translating to Anglo-Saxon. Like, I mean, it starts from the very early there, translations. Well, then you're, yeah, we're getting into the like, where's the role of conscience come out. This, you're, what you're getting at is the end of the string, and this is sort of, in many ways, the beginning of the string. That there is an argument to be made that the beginning of the modern problem of relativism does start here. That there is a certain degree um, within these philosophies. And you can go back a little bit farther and place it at the feet of the some philosophers who actually were Franciscans in the in Germany before Martin Luther in particular William of Ockham and the rise of what's called nominalism that where they start to overturn that the basically of absolutes it's going to start there Luther studies this and it there is a sort of a philosophical string that one can see until you get into this modern idea of conscience being absolute but but Luther didn't go that far. Like, this is something where he opened Pandora's box with this, like, okay, so when you say the sola mia, that if everyone is equally a priest, everyone can equally interpret scripture for themselves, how are you going to say that one interpretation is better than another? And this turned into an absolute mess, the, that everyone started interpreting the scripture left and right, and you took away the authority of the church, and you ended up with this absolute mess. And the end result of that was Luther was disgusted by the mess when he saw people taking these teachings to the extreme. So what he ended up doing was simply replacing the authority of the church with the authority of himself. Um, that everyone did not have the right to interpret scripture for themselves. He had the right to interpret scripture for them. Um, and this is, I mean, a similar thing in Geneva, like John Calvin, that it was illegal to speak against the Bible or the Institutes of, John, of Religion by John Calvin, that they were put on sort of equal footing within, that there is this, this a natural understanding that there has to be authority. of, And if you don't have it, you'll either have anarchy or you replace the authority of the church with a substitute. So, I mean, so yeah, I would say, that, but it would be a lot more complicated answer to trace through the whole line of thinking to get there. Yeah.
No, I mean, because the general understanding that they say is, well, that the Holy Spirit will inspire them. So basically, instead of the, the trust that the Holy Spirit will keep the church in its entirety from error, they replace it with that the Holy Spirit will keep them individually from error. Well, there's a lot of sincere people that disagree about things. Mm-hmm. To what degree is that actually a, a valid uh, statement about the need to cure the sin strand that's going on, the, the, the overall effect of transitions, so self-defense, fortress mentality, rather than a little bit lighter and rational? Um, how, how, how does that be I don't agree with that interpretation. That I mean, Trent is successful. Like, Protestantism gets stopped in its tracks and gets turned back. I mean, when they go out and start to engage, because it's not that Trent said, okay, we're going to not go into a fortress, say our stuff, our, what our teachings are, and not engage their teachings. Like, they're very clearly engaging the teachings of the heretics and calling on the church to go out and directly engage. So you're going to get saints that are going to come directly as a result of this. Like, I think of, like, Peter Canisius, um, the hammer of the heretic, um, who converted something like 30,000 Protestants back to the Catholic Church. Um, or Francis de Sales in, with the, the Calvinists, that I don't, I mean, there's a certain extent that the, when you get, I, you could make that argument a little bit more that the church is getting, being reactionary when you get into the 19th century, um, when the church is going to have to deal with the modern problems of liberalism and, um, and products of the Enlightenment. But even then, it's, it, the church tries to engage a little bit, but they don't entirely know what to do. And actually, the best historical argument I've heard of that is in um, basically the, in, a, in a book of the history of the Dominican order by Benedict Ashley. He goes through and he basically he talks about the Dominicans more than the Jesuits, but that the Dominicans from were leading, we always think of the, the Jesuits leading the Counter-Reformation. But in many ways, it really was the Dominicans early on. They were the ones that were the experts at the council. They were the ones that were producing the Pope that was going to do this. And actually at the council of the 67 bishops there, 33 of them were Dominicans. Um, and that, but that one of the things that happens, though, is that since the time of Dominic on, the Dominicans really were the bulwark against heresy within the church. But when you get later on at the time of the Enlightenment, that one of the problems that happens is while the Jesuits had done a whole lot at this time, that the Dominicans and the Jesuits end up arguing with each other more than they end up arguing with the heretics. And so they spend, the Dominicans spend so much time trying to be a check on the Jesuits that they never actually end up engaging the Enlightenment properly. And so it's really the, the church becoming reactionary becomes at the time of the Enlightenment because the church never properly deals with the Enlightenment and figures out how to address it. Um, so I don't think it ties in with the Council of Trent um, so much. Does that make sense? Yeah. Any last questions?
questions, comments, snide remarks? Nothing? All right. I guess we can close with prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. God, our Father, you sent your Son into the world to be its true light. Pour out the Holy Spirit, he promised us, to sow truth in men's hearts and awaken them to the obedience of faith. May all men be born again to new life in baptism and so enter the fellowship of your one holy church through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.